Thank you for listening to this Table Church Sermon Podcast. We are in a series on prayer right now called Praying for a Change. Now, many of us are praying for something to change, but we aren't sure how to do it. Others of us barely pray and need to start praying for a change. This series is intended to help with both. So come learn with us as we develop a hunger for God in prayer, as well as some practical tools to help us pray better. And as always, if you need anything, please find us at our website, tablechurchdsm.org. Now please enjoy this week's teaching. Good morning, church. If you're a first-time visitor of Table Church and you do not own a copy of God's Word, we would love to gift one of those to you. We have some ushers in the back that will put uh, a Bible in your hand if you raise it, and we'd love to gift that to you. Our scripture this morning is found in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 21. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Amen. Thank you, Cheryl. Happy Easter, everyone. It's so great to see your beautiful faces here today. Thank you for joining us at Table Church. And thanks to everyone who came to our, our Good Friday service. That was, that was just really sweet, wasn't it? Like something happened, I think, in that room. And it was, it was wonderful to be a part of it. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And of course, today we finish the story, don't we? It's Easter. So let's go. One of the greatest lies of the modern age... Um, I'm going to tell what I'm going to tell you what it is, and I have to have to explain it because it may not make a lot of sense. One of the greatest lies I think of the age that we live in, that we are told either implicitly or explicitly, is that truth is easy. We are told that truth is easy. See, my brain, it, I'm at least this is what many of us think. My brain is all I need in order to come unto all truth, and maybe with the help of the supercomputer in my pocket every now and then with a Google search. But we're so individualistic, uh, we are very democratic, uh, and so what we, we have come to think is that really, you know, I'll, my reason, my bulletproof powers of reason, that's really all I need to figure out life's greatest mysteries and to figure out what I need and what is true and what is good and what I ought to do with myself. Now, this belief that truth is easy separates our age and our culture from, honestly, most of history and most of the world today. Our belief that truth is easy makes us very unique, that I can just figure things out on my own. The ancients 
Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, they did not believe that truth was easy. For them, truth was hard. Truth was something you must orient your entire life toward. And if you're lucky, maybe by the, by the time you die, you will have some truth. That's the way that they thought about it. Now listen, one of the core beliefs of our faith is that we are remarkably bad at truth. <laughs> like, contrary to the modern uh, assumption, if all you are armed with is your brain and a smartphone, that's not a recipe for truth. In fact, quite the opposite. You're probably going to go the other way at some point. And it's, you're going to maybe go the other way really, really bad. One of my favorite philosophers, Kierkegaard, he said that we are untruth. That's how he described our condition. We are untruth. Listen, Paul writes to the Ephesians, he says, I keep asking God, it's in the continuous sense, I am continually asking God. He's constantly praying that the Ephesians would be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation because Paul understands that truth is hard and it is easy to forget. When I say truth, I'm not just talking about like, oh, what's the NASDAQ doing or something. I'm talking about what is the good that we should orient our lives toward? What does it mean to live a life of meaning and purpose and goodness? That's what we're talking about when we say truth. That is hard. And so Paul prays that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. Why? Because he gets it. Truth is hard and it's easy to forget. So he labors in prayer for the Ephesians that they might know the truth. And on this Easter Sunday, I want to remind you of some truth that is hard to know and easy to forget. I want to tell you some truth today about who you are. He lays it out for us in this text. He prays that the Ephesians would know three things. Let's read it. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know, number one, the hope to which he has called you, number two, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and number three, his incomparably great power for us who believe. So Paul knows that these three things are hard to know. Number one, the hope to which he has called you. That is your destiny. We're going to talk about destiny here in a second. Number two, the riches of his glorious inheritance. That has to do with your identity. We're going to talk about that too. And finally, his incomparably great power. This is the power that Paul says is fairly available to us. We're going to explore that as well. Destiny, identity, and power. And I want you to know these three things about yourself today before you leave that are hard to know and easy for us to forget. So number one, you have a destiny. He says that he prays that they might know in order that you might know the hope to which he has called you. My children are very observant and any time that I take a wrong turn on a familiar route, it's like, Dad, Dad, where are you going? Dad, where, what are, what's going on? It is an uncomfortable feeling to not know where you're going. There's a philosopher named Charles Taylor who says that if we don't have a sense of what we're about, of what is the good that we are pursuing with our lives, then we can't know who we are. In order to know who you are, you got to know what you're about. you got to know what your purpose is. you got to know where you're going. These are questions about destiny, and without these answers, our souls kind of shrivel. 
And these are things that you may not have mapped out in your head, what is my destiny, you know. But I bet that you're operating under some sort of assumption about where all this is going to go and where you're headed eventually. So uh, in the ancient world, they saw history largely kind of circular. And this is easy to understand why they would. You see the seasons changing year in, year out. So time was kind of circular. But the, the people of God in the Old Testament introduced something rather radical and revolutionary. They started to see tr- uh, history and time a little different. They started to see it not as a circle, but as a line. Like it's going somewhere. God has something out here, some sort of a future that he's kind of bringing us towards. And they started, you know, the prophets would talk about this, this glorious future that God was unfolding and would eventually bring into fulfillment. Well, Easter is the day that that future breaks into our presence. Jesus' resurrected body is like a sneak preview of what it's going to be like here. It's like the, a, little, a little piece of the future new creation drops down right in the middle of our present reality. That's why when the Bible talks about hope, it has a different meaning than when you and I often use the word hope. When you and I say hope, a lot of times we just mean optimism. Like optimism, that's just like thinking the best regardless of any particular evidence for it one way or another. That's optimism, but that's not Christian hope. Christian hope is a future expectation based on something already done. Whenever the Bible uses the word hope, that's what it's talking about. A future expectation based on something that is already done. And so when we talk about destiny today, you can know that it's not just optimism here. We're talking about uh, an expectation based on a reality. And that reality is that the future has come into our present and we have seen it. It has happened. Jesus is alive. In the second century, there was a man with a funny name. His name was Polycarp. Sounds like a fish. Polycarp was, uh, he was actually discipled by the Apostle John, which is kind of cool to think about. So Polycarp is like part of the, like the second generation of, of Jesus' followers, discipled by the first generation, the people who are actually with Jesus, and then they made disciples, and Polycarp was one of them. And Polycarp, uh, he, when he's very old, he's 86 years old, and he is um, marched into an arena And the governor is there, and the governor tells Polycarp to renounce his faith in Christ. He says, renounce that Jesus is Lord, and instead say, Caesar is Lord. And they had this whole ritual. You're supposed to drop some incense on an altar and say, Caesar is Lord. And this was a a widespread practice throughout the, the Roman Empire. So the Christians come along, and they start saying, Jesus is Lord. And they're going, this is just craziness. You can't have that going on, right? Caesar has to maintain his power. And so they bring Polycarp in and they say, say Caesar is Lord. And here's what Polycarp says. He says, for 86 years, I have been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And with that, Polycarp welcomed the flames. Listen, Polycarp, he knew something, didn't he? Like, I don't think this was just optimism here. Like, I think he had had an experience. You know, you read the whole, the whole story, and he's like cracking jokes. <laughs> he's like making fun of the people in the arena who are about to torture him. Polycarb knew something, didn't he? The resurrection means that 
you can know God now and taste what comes then, and we can have a certain hope about our destiny. Listen, your destiny is to be with God and to join him in remaking a world that has gone terribly wrong. That is your destiny. We are literally joining God. I, this, is, this is crazy language. We are joining God in renewing the cosmos. Like next time somebody says, what are you doing? She's like, I'm just, I, what do you want to do with your life? I just want to renew the cosmos, you know? Like that's your destiny as a follower of Jesus. It's like too big for us to hold on to sometimes. But that's what Paul's praying that they would understand. Like you have a destiny that is so much bigger than yourself, so much grander than anything that you could possibly imagine. You are joining God in renewing a world that has gone horribly wrong. And he is with you in it. That's amazing. The second thing that Paul wants us to understand is that you have an identity. He says the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people. I'm going to explain what that has to do with identity here in a second. But first, what is, what is the modern understanding or definition of identity? I think uh, there's a song in The Greatest Showman that lays out our modern sense of identity well. It goes like this. Look out, because here I come, and I'm marching on to the beat I drum. I'm not scared to be seen. I make no apologies this is me. And so if we were to sum up the modern answer to the question, who am I? It would probably be something like this. Well, I'm whoever I decide to be. I'm, I construct myself. Now, this, this kind of modern notion of constructing yourself is quite different from past history, where actually your identity was assigned to you often by your culture. So if you're the son of a blacksmith, then you're a blacksmith, you know, uh, or your identity was kind of had to do with your role in culture, like you are a husband or a wife or a son or a daughter or a citizen. And so today we see identity as constructed, self-constructed. Not too long ago, identity was given by culture, but I want to argue that the Bible actually roots your identity somewhere other than either of those things. Paul prays, well, sorry, let me go back. The Bible teaches that we do not construct our identity, but rather it is rooted in something much bigger than yourself and much bigger even than your culture. Paul prays that the Ephesians would know the riches of his glorious inheritance. Let me tell you what that has to do with your identity here. First, I want you to know something about this passage. You've got to look at the text. You've got to be careful here. Notice that this passage is not talking about your inheritance. Paul has some of the longest sentences ever written, and so they're like, like really difficult sometimes to preach on and to parse through it. So you just got to kind of, you got to zero in. He's not talking about your inheritance. He mentions your inheritance earlier in verse 11, like the people of God, their inheritance. But here the text says his inheritance. We're talking about God's inheritance, okay? We often talk about our inheritance in the church and we're co-heirs with Christ and that's wonderful, lovely things, but that's not what this verse is talking about here. Uh, we, we often forget God has an inheritance too. And what's his inheritance? Well, it's us. We are God's inheritance, you and me. It says his inheritance in his holy people. The reason why this is amazing is because in the Bible, an inheritance is a really, really big deal. Often the inheritance is what it's all about. Like, who, how, who am I going to pass my inheritance on to? You know, when do I get my inheritance? Things like that. This is a really big deal. And apparently, uh, the inheritance was the possession of highest value. And Paul says, that's you. You are God's inheritance. You are God's possession 
of highest value. And after the victory of the cross and the resurrection, the prized possession that God receives is us. That's cool. Do you know how much joy you bring God? You are God's prized possession. God could have anything and what he wants is his people. He wants us. The day that my daughter Vienna came home to us, we gave her a stuffed lion and she has not let it go since. It's been six years. And she, this, I think Vienna would rather lose her bed than her lion. It is her most valuable and prized possession. She loves that thing. She would leave the 99 other stuffed animals in order to find this one. Like, it is her prized possession. There's nothing in the universe that God would not give up in order to have his people. We are his prized possession. That's who you are. You are God's inheritance. This is the, 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 the cornerstone of your identity. And listen, there's no decisions you have to make. There's nothing, you, there's no role you have to fill. You don't have to construct anything. It's already done. Like, it's just true whether you like it or not. And that is the biggest defining characteristic of who you are. You are God's beloved. That is where your identity begins. You are the thing that God would leave the 99 of in order to find. The third thing Paul wants us to know is that you have access to power. Let me read the passage. And his incomparably great power for us who believe, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Okay, Paul is just like stacking adjectives on top of each other here in order to try to convey just how magnificent this power is that, that we see. Uh, he's, things like incomparably great, mighty strength, far above all rule. He's, he's pressing the limits of language in order to help them see. This is what is available to you, Christians. Now, Ephesus was a city of power. Every, every emperor wants to have a large presence in Ephesus because it was a powerful city. It was a religiously powerful city, too. There's all sorts of different cults, and they promised you know, mysterious power to you if you follow them. Power was everywhere. It was a big theme. So Paul knows what he's doing when he's writing this letter to the Ephesians. And for Paul, he says that the power that towers over every other power is the power that brought Jesus from the dead, that seats him at the right hand of the Father, and is bringing all things to completion. That's real power, Paul says. And that power is unleashed for us who believe. This is, this is hard for us to know. <laughs> this is hard truth for us. It's easy to forget when things just seem miserable, isn't it? There's a, there's a children's book that my kids used to love called The Gruffalo. Anybody read The Gruffalo? Nobody's re- Okay, Cheryl's read The Gruffalo? Okay, good. I was like, holy smoke, we're going to have story time here in a second. <laughs> you guys got to read The Gruffalo. It's great. Anyway, it's a story about this mouse in the woods. And uh, he's strolling through the woods, and he's a clever mouse. He comes across some predators. He comes across a fox and a snake, and an owl, and they all want to eat the mouse. And so this mouse, he's thinking on his feet. He says, you don't want to eat me. I'm going to see my friend, the Gruffalo. They're like, what's the Gruffalo? And he describes the Gruffalo to him. The Gruffalo is like this big monster. Oh, and by the way, guess what his favorite food is? Fox, or snake, owl ice cream. You know, like, this is his favorite food. And so they run scampering away from the mouse. Better not mess with him. And so the mouse continues on his merry way, and all of a sudden, boom, he runs into, guess what? An actual Gruffalo. And the mouse is terrified. Oh, no. And the Gruffalo looks at him and he says, hmm, you look good to eat. And then the mouse gets clever again. He says, you don't want to eat me, Gruffalo. I'm the fiercest creature in this whole wood. Gruffalo's like, what? He's like, yeah, just walk behind me and you'll see. 
So the Gruffalo starts walking through the woods again, or the mouse with the Gruffalo right behind him, comes across the fox. Fox takes one look at the mouse and runs away. Snake takes one look at the mouse and slithers off. The owl, you know, flies away in terror. And he says, see, I'm the scariest animal in this whole wood. And Gruffalo says, whoa, I didn't realize. And he runs away too. <laughs> and, uh, and the mouse enjoys his nut in the deep, dark wood. Now, the mouse's power isn't his. It belongs to the one behind him. I heard a preacher talk about prayer once, and he was talking about the fact that so often when we pray, we just feel like our prayers are just like hitting the ceiling, like just going nowhere, you know? And he says, what if it's like prayer is like a squirt gun? You've got a little, little water pistol, and you're just, you know, we're just firing every which way. Like, my Lord, my toe hurts. Heal my toe. You know, God, I'm just kind of stressed about this. And we're just, we're just firing off our prayers every direction. And then he says, it's almost like, what if God has like a fire hose, you know? And God is shooting his fire hose right there. And we're just like shooting off every direction. But every now and then, our hearts align with God's. And we fire our squirt gun the same direction as God's fire hose. And boom, that's when we see things happen. Look, what if the power, what if the key to experiencing God's power is to focus on him, not us? What if the power belongs not to us, but to the one who's behind us? And when we align ourselves with him, that's when miracles start to happen. I think that Paul would agree. That's when we start to see this mysterious power that raised Jesus from the dead. That power is for us, and it's a lot bigger than a fire hose. It's the power that raised Christ from the dead, and that power is available to us. But remember, truth is hard. You can't just say, okay, I'm going to summon this power, right? No, what if it means that we first have to get our hearts in alignment with God's, in alignment with God's, and as we go through this process of, of learning what God is like and who he is and what his heart is, that our hearts slowly line up with his, and then we start seeing miracles happen. I think that's the way it goes. In fact, there are saints throughout history who would testify to that truth. But that truth isn't easy. In February this year, a strange phenomenon took over most of our social media feeds. People started calling it the Asbury Revival, or the Asbury Outpouring, and um, it became big, became kind of a circus. Like the, like an international phenomenon. People from all over the world were coming to this, this you know, weeks-long worship service, essentially. Um, and it was kind of a remarkable story. There was a regularly scheduled chapel service at this university, and um, it was just an average chapel service, but a few young people stayed afterwards to pray. And then slowly, over the course of the next couple of hours, people started trickling back into the auditorium. And you read the stories by some of the professors on campus, and they would say, like, yeah, students just started asking if they could go back to the auditorium. They, nobody really exactly knew why. It wasn't necessarily a coordinated thing. But within a few hours, the auditorium was packed full of people again, worshiping God. It became this huge thing. And, and, and I read some of the testimonies of some of the students who were kind of in the heart of it. Um, these young people who were leading this tremendous uh, outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And one statement that a girl made stuck out to me. Um, she said, we just want to minister to Jesus. We just want to bless Jesus. That's what this is all about. 
And the reason why I found that so remarkable is because we often just want to bless ourselves. We often want God to bless us. But it's like this divine spark just ignited when a bunch of people came together and said, look, it's ain't about me. This is about blessing God. This is about glorifying God. And so they literally, like if you were going to lead worship at this thing, you would have to go through an hour of consecration prayer first. That's how serious they were about making sure when they come before God that they do it with a, with a pure heart. This was not about them. This was about pleasing God. And when that happened, miracles poured out. Like I said, we often think in terms of Jesus ministering to us. Bless me, God, we pray. I pray it all the time. I'm always like, God, bless this congregation. Minister to the hearts of the people here. There's nothing wrong with that. That's what God wants us to do. But I also think it's important for us to think, how can I bless God today? What if when we come into this room, we say, I cannot wait to just pour out my adoration and praise to the Father. I cannot wait to just show Jesus how thankful I am for what he's done for me. What if what got me excited when I come into here is that I get to just say, God, you are so good. Let me show you what I mean. What would happen if that's how our hearts were? If that's the kind of thing that we came to this room ready to do? I believe that when that happens, that's when power is unleashed. Listen, your destiny, your identity, your power, these are three things that are hard for us to know and easy to forget. And so today we must plant them in our hearts. But you know, some of us, I'm sure, might, if we thought about it for a second, might realize that, you know what, I've actually been very focused on myself, on my blessings. So let me tell you once again a truth that is very hard for us to know. True fulfillment, true freedom, true power comes from laying ourselves down. It comes from giving our life away and surrendering to God. Seems backwards, doesn't it? But it's true, and the most enduring faith ever to grace the face of the earth says this is how it works. When we turn our hearts off of ourselves and onto him, somehow we get a remarkable life and freedom and satisfaction that the Bible says surpasses understanding. And so I want to invite you, if you've never made that step, if you've never surrendered yourself to God, if you haven't, as Jesus says, laid your life down for him, maybe today's the day to do it. Because when you do that, you get to remember that the one you're surrendering to is the only one who has conquered death. And so you're in pretty good company. If you would like to surrender, if you'd like to give your life to God today, I want to invite you to do that on your connection card. It's really easy. Just circle a cross. There's a picture of a cross there. You circle that. The reason why that's important is because, remember, truth is hard. Uh, Following Jesus can be hard. And it's better when you are with others. And if you circle that cross, then I can reach out to you and help you as you begin. And that's literally my job. So I would love for you to do that. Uh, let's pray God sin has lost its power and death has lost its sting thanks be to God we bless your name and we give you all the glory today and God for those of us who are having a hard time with these truths about who we are that Lord, we have a destiny in you, that we have an identity rooted in your love for us, or that there's a power for us to live a life of freedom and purpose and truth. God, I pray that right now you'd make it real to them. 
that you give them the courage to take that step of giving themselves to you and following you, becoming your student for life. Lord, I ask that today, um, of all the activities, the, the wonderful meals we're probably going to share with family and the laughter we're going to have and the Easter egg hunts and the chocolate we're going to eat, the donuts that we're all going to have in here in a minute, Lord, all that stuff is great. But Lord, may the sweetest thing today be that your name is on our lips and that there is no greater name and there is no greater privilege than to honor and to worship you. And so thank you for this glimpse of heaven we've had today. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.